Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio, uh, the post-Independence Day celebration, uh, our little monthly look at space policy. I'm Matt Kaplan, the host of Planetary Radio. We look forward to another terrific conversation with you about uh, the things that go on in Washington and elsewhere that determine what's going to be happening in space over the coming years. I'm joined, as always, by Casey Dreyer, the Director of Space Policy for the Planetary Society. Hello, Casey. Hey, Matt. Jason, my colleague in Space Policy uh, Program here. How are you? I'm doing well. That's Jason Callahan, our, uh, one of our guys. Now we have two inside the Beltway, our Space Policy Advisor at the Planetary Society. Uh, they are two-thirds of our th- uh, three-person full-time space advocacy uh, group, Uh, working on behalf of all of us who uh, want to see space exploration and space science advanced. You also can be a part of that. If you're a member of the Planetary Society, you're already part of it. So uh, thank you for your support. But if you're not, we hope that you'll consider becoming a member at planetary.org slash membership. And you can also, uh, Casey, Give directly to uh, support space policy, even if you're space policy and space advocacy, whether you're a member or not. Oh, you sure can. We'll take your money uh, either way. But I encourage you to become a member. It makes a great uh, Independence Day gift. Everyone's favorite. (laughs) And I hope you guys had a great Independence Day. I did. I I love seeing amateur rocketry all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, unfortunately, it tends to be the the, the amateur rocketry that's really good at launching stuff, but not so much at returning it. Yeah, but it's still really exciting (laughs) to watch. I've yet to have sample return. Yes, from uh, right. the fireworks. <laughs> uh, we have much to talk about, and in beginning with this discussion of what just happened in the White House a few days before uh, we recorded this uh, segment, the formation of a new National Space Council. That's coming up in moments, but much more like uh, where we're headed with uh, planetary science and ex- exploration of the solar system, uh, some reports that have been issued. And then we're going to finish uh, this month's program by letting you uh, be introduced to that third member of the space policy uh, advocacy team at the Planetary Society, Matt Renninger. And it was a, a terrific conversation that you guys have, uh, have heard, and uh, I hope folks will stick around for that. But let's start with what the President of the United States, Donald Trump, uh, put back in place just a few days ago. Let's just start and just appreciate the, the high-visibility moment of the afternoon before the long July 4th weekend (laughs) in the United States. So well publicized, it was not even on the official uh, timeline for the day of the president's activities. But we signed an executive order on Friday uh, before the long weekend reestablishing the National Space Council. Vice President Pence will lead it. Uh, He was there Buzz Aldrin was there. Uh, other astronauts and Congress people, dignitaries around, joined the president as they signed the the order to form the council. Maybe they put it on that Friday afternoon because there actually wasn't all that much uh, information beyond the fact that he signed the order, which we knew was coming in general. So we don't know who is on the council. We don't know who the executive secretary is. We know that Pence is on it. And that's about it. Jason, did I capture that effectively? Yeah, yeah. So the the announcement sort of told us what cabinet members will be on this this panel, the council. But a number of really key positions have yet to have been filled. 
So we know the like position, the, but we don't know the individual. Yeah. Like the NASA administrator would yes. be one. <laughs> yes, and the director of the Office of Science and Technology Policy would be another one. Yeah. Without that key personnel, it's not clear yet exactly what the the overarching goals will be beyond a couple of sort of really high-level things that they said in the announcement. We may know more soon. We, we, we know that the vice president, as we record this, is planning to speak this week at Kennedy Space Center. We don't know what he's going to say, so it could be potentially the announcement of a NASA administrator candidate. As our colleague Jason Davis has pointed out, we are officially now at the longest duration presidential transition period for NASA without an administrator at least being appointed. I think 165 days has passed now. It's longer than George Lowe back in the post-Apollo era. Uh, longest time, uh, we have acting administrator Robert Lightfoot with no appointed replacement, basically. It's the longest period in, in history, basically, I guess, for NASA, right? Yeah, yeah. The first transition was the Nixon administration, and Nixon was singularly uninterested in space when he first came into office. Without a high prioritization, it took him a while to determine who was going to lead the agency. I hope that that's not the case that you're seeing here, and that is sort of evidenced by the fact that NASA is not alone in having gone a long time without having uh, leadership appointed by the White House. There are a lot of other agencies in the same boat. So it, it could just be that this administration is slow getting started uh, in a way that most administrations have not been previously, and I hope that that's the case. And th this is a point that's made by our colleague Jason Davis, digital editor for the Society, in a uh, July 3rd blog post at planetary.org. And in that, he also talked to a uh, member of the Planetary Society board, John Logston, the uh, professor emeritus at uh, George Washington University and uh, founder of its uh, Space Policy Institute. John had written an article in January looking sort of forward and backward at uh, National Space Councils. I think one of the things that Professor Logston really did a nice job of pointing out is that the main focus of a National Space Council is not NASA. It's to align all of U.S. space activities, and the great preponderance of U.S. space, space activity uh, is not the civil space program. It's the National Defense Space Program. Right. There's so, the, the other space program at the United States, right, that, which actually has more money than NASA uh, to spend on, and they don't launch people into space, so it's all in robotic spacecraft effectively, right? Yeah. And they're looking at things like uh, everything from communications to weather prediction to GPS to you know all, all of these other sort of Earth-based capabilities. And one of the things that they mentioned in the announcement of the revival of the National Space Council is that the role of this council was really going to be to go through and make sure that there weren't duplicative efforts throughout the various aspects of the U.S. space effort. And we've seen efforts to try and, and remove duplication before and not always with a, a great amount of success. Uh, one of the fundamental problems that you have with trying to align all of the U.S. space program uh, writ large to a singular uh, sort of strategy is the fact that military space is different than intelligence space, which is all very different than civilian space. Even though you may have similar capabilities, they may be for very, very different purposes, and it's hard to build a spacecraft that meets both of those purposes or you know, multiple purposes. So that's how you end up with things that end up costing way too much money and running wildly over budget uh, with these interagency programs, and we've seen a lot of that in the past. Hopefully okay. that, that won't be the outcome of this. Sometimes in space, duplication can be good. Like It's not an inherently negative trait. You know, it's not like this idea is new, like we shouldn't spend money we don't need 
to spend it on, right? That's not like this new concept. So why are we reestablishing the National Space Council? Why hasn't it been running this whole time? Or what happened to it? Why is this a step that needs to happen? In previous administrations, certain presidents have viewed the National Space Council as actually being a duplicative effort in and of itself. And they, <laughs> that's, that's a good point. <laughs> and they tend to run conclusion from the National Space Council that they that's are. Right, that's right. <laughs> um, so in past administrations, you've seen uh, overarching strategy for space run through perhaps the Office of Science and Technology Policy, or perhaps they'll divide it into military and civilian, and you'll see the the, the, the military sort of run their own organization that it doesn't include the civilian or at least not to a significant degree. This isn't fixing a problem necessarily. It's taking a different approach to an ongoing effort of strategy. And uh, and that just differs from administration to administration. So the last time we really saw this, I think, as a really active council was 1989 with George H.W. Bush. And this all goes into history we don't really have time for today, but with the Space Exploration Initiative trying to send humans back to the moon and onto Mars in, in the first Bush administration, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a, a great book about that particular effort called Mars Wars by an author named Thor Hogan, who sort of does the blow by blow of how that all played out. But yeah, that, that that Space Council tried very stringently to change the direction at NASA and ran headlong into serious cultural issues at NASA, uh, which is a really good case study in the difficulty in implementing policy changes, significant policy changes in a top-down fashion without really working within the culture to get everybody on board. It's a, a great discussion about how not to do coalition building, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it just shows you that there are pitfalls from this. Like, there's no guarantee. We just do not know how this is going to come out. And a lot of it will depend on, as Dr. Logston has pointed out and others have pointed out in the policy world, that it really depends on how invested the president is in the council and how much kind of by proxy influence they then have does NASA and, other, and DOD and other you know, parts of this uh, uh, group of people who would be affected by this, do they have faith that this council will represent actual political capital behind it? We will see. So far, Vice President Pence seems pretty gung-ho about it. So that's a good sign. As I've been saying, this is a kind of a plan to make a plan. And we are currently in the planning stage of the making a plan to make a plan. So it's, it's, <laughs> we're, 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 it's, a, it's a step we will hopefully learn more soon, but the existence of it in its own self doesn't really mean that much. It, it's basically we are going to try to figure out what we want to do with this whole space program. And another thing that I've written about a little bit in the past, one thing that, that I think we've seen over the past 15, 20, maybe even 25 years, as presidential administrations have sort of taken a more hands-off approach, specifically with NASA, Congress has sort of stepped into that void. And it's not really clear to me that they're interested in relinquishing that new or that new capacity that they operate under. It's entirely possible that, you know, the National Space Council comes out and it has tremendous support from the White House and it makes all these very sweeping uh, suggestions for changes or uh, new strategies for all of the various space capabilities in the United States and Congress says no. So, yeah. <laughs> right. so we'll have to wait and yeah. see what happens there as well. Yeah, because there's no, there's no, at least that we've seen yet, any official congressional representation on that council. Now, there, there may be appointed people who are either staff or somebody, but it's not like Congress 
members themselves sit on this council. It's an executive branch council. Well, if there is any big news that comes out of whatever uh, Vice President Pence may have to say at uh, Kennedy Space Center, the day after we are recording this, since we're doing this on uh, Wednesday the uh, 5th, we'll uh, probably have that for you at planetary.org and maybe on Planetary Radio as soon as next week, because Casey, might be a good idea for you to come on and uh, talk a little bit about this on the regular show in one of those little short segments that we do. Yeah, hey, twist my arm, Matt. If, if you need me, I'm there for you. <laughs> Thank you. Let's 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 uh, plan on that for uh, next week's show. Whatever influence the Space Council may have over the future of uh, planetary uh, science and uh, solar system exploration, the wheels keep turning elsewhere. That, I think, is going to be our major topic for today. It looks like a lot of people are jockeying for position as uh, the nation and its scientists prepare to um, come up with a new 10-year plan for uh, what may be happening across, what, the 2020s, guys? Tell us where we are uh, and uh, about some of these reports that you've uh, shared. I just find this so fascinating. This whole process is, is just so cool to watch it happen basically right in front of our eyes. It's a very methodical process, and it's a process that I will appreciate probably when I'm an old man and maybe some of these missions are actually returning data. But a couple of reports came out since our last episode. They're not related necessarily, but they fit into this larger sense of exactly what you said, Matt. People are starting to position themselves for the next decadal survey report, which will be, you know, they'll start working on that in a couple of years to be released maybe, what, 2021? Uh, It'll probably come out late 2021, I would guess. So they'll probably start working on it in 2020. Interestingly, you know, we're talking about people getting ready for that report now. We're also in the process of the midterm report on the previous decadal survey. So this this is an iterative and ongoing process that has a lot of moving parts at any given time. So there's a committee now doing basically a a report card on the previous report to determine whether or not NASA has been following it and how well and where they could improve at the same time that the community is gearing up for the next decadal survey. And this is, again, the decadal survey from National Academies focused on that official recommendation of what the top priority missions should be. These missions would be from the decade of 2022 to 2022. 31 or 2032, whatever, you know, that 10 year window. And that is a long time (laughs) to think about. And, And mainly that period will be building the mission to launch probably after it. You know, it's, it's hard to actually for some of these big missions to get those priorities actually built in that time frame, like what we're seeing now. What we're seeing here is two reports. Let's talk about them. One is on the ice giants, Neptune and Uranus and what types of missions we could send there. Now, this report came at the request of NASA itself. Is that right, Jason? Yeah, which is uh, uh, different than the the second report that we'll talk about. But basically, NASA asked the community to put together a committee to evaluate flagship class missions to either Neptune or Uranus or uh, possibly to both, because this is a, a portion of the planetary science community that has not had a mission to an outer planet, aside from Cassini, in 
a couple Juno. of decades. Oh, there's uh, Juno, well, Juno. Juno. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but Jupiter hardly sweating. counts as an outer planet. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anymore. It's yeah. It's it's getting you, closer and closer. You can use solar. It's no longer an outer planet. I think right. Is that the official definition? But you're right. I mean, you like we're, that. Yeah. Yeah. This community. <laughs> this community. Would you say they have a tougher time than even Venus? Uh, scientific community here, because at least Venus has had a dedicated mission. If you have studied Uranus your entire life, yeah. you have that one Voyager 2 flyby in 1986, yeah. and then you have ground observations. That's and it. A little that's, bit of Hubble like, data. Yeah, that's that's basically it. You're talking about a community of scientists that is actually, at this point, relatively small, because they've either had to find other things to study to keep them going, or they've been focused on a very small data set for a very, very long time. But these people have been thinking about this planet for a really long time and or thinking about these these destinations for a long time and coming up with different and new and innovative ways that you could do science if you could get a mission. And this report is sort of an encapsulation of all of that thinking. So for a preliminary mission study, I found it really interesting that it, it's really quite detailed. It's 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 really well done and really it's interesting. a 500 page report. Yeah, in the full thing, which is, uh, you know, they have a great executive summary. I recommend people will link to this in, in the show page. To me, if you have the question, how do scientists get these missions? This is basically that part of that, like one of your early steps in this process. And if you are a scientist working in this field, you have to be pushing to do these types of reports. They may feel so abstract and so far away from meaning anything. But you have to put in the work like this now to get these missions 20, 25 years from now, right? Yeah. You're like building your case for, again, this wide constituency has to be convinced that this is important and it, it would pay off well. That's what struck me about this report was that kind of that emphasis of we don't know very much about these planets. And they're all over the place. They're, Neptune and Uranus, they are types of planets that astronomers find everywhere in the galaxy when, uh, as exoplanets. And we haven't even really understood our own. And that's a really great point, that if we're going to do more exploration of, of exoplanets using telescopes to try and figure out what we're looking at, we need a baseline. We have to understand the processes that make the, the, the planets closest to us work to understand the planets that are that far away. So all in favor of these missions. I think they're really, really fantastic. Another aspect of these that I found really interesting, for a very long time, I've been under the assumption that getting out to those really far outer planets was going to cost billions of dollars. One of the interesting aspects of this report was that they did not only internal cost estimation, but then sent it out for an external cost review at Aerospace Corporation. And what they came back with were four mission possibilities uh, one to Neptune and three to Uranus, all of which were in a, a cost range of $1.9 to $2.3 billion, and that was the external cost. That's a far more reasonable cost envelope for this kind of a mission than I'd ever heard before, and I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, I was really impressed by that, and that's the critical thing. And I, I really feel it's kind of interesting that the $2 billion threshold seems to be kind of the magic amount where it seems doable that you can fit it in with some other missions and it's not going to completely throw off the balance of your planetary exploration portfolio the europa clipper had that at least initially mars 2020 had that initially and now they're trying to kind of baseline these missions to uranus and neptune around that this report doesn't 
prioritize any of these missions. It, it basically kind of makes the case for both. It does explicitly say both planets are equally interesting scientifically, but you would get different scientific benefits you go to Neptune, the big thing there is that Triton is a captured Kuiper Belt object, and you can compare that to Pluto. So it's basically captured a Pluto, so you can get like a, a Pluto-ish mission and a Neptune mission, kind of a two-in-one. But then the subtext, though, that I got from this whole report was it's a lot easier to get to Uranus and a lot faster and cheaper because really they look at one possible mission to Neptune and then three to Uranus. All the Uranus ones are, I guess you have a flyby, you have an orbiter, and an orbiter with a lot of science data, uh, a lot of science uh, instrumentation. All of those, again, around two billion bucks. <laughs> we have to eat our vegetables if we want to see these missions, should they come to fruition, because the launch window really for Uranus is between 2030 and 2034, and then you're talking about roughly eight years after that to get there, 2040-ish in the ideal situation. Yeah, and two other points that the report made. Uh, first of all, there is no trajectory that allows for one mission to get to both planets. You have to pick one. You know, we had the opportunity to do the 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 grand tour back in the 1970s with the Voyager missions, but those planets are no longer in that alignment and won't be for like 170 years or 150 years or something at this point. We have to work with what we've got, and that's that means we're going to have to select one mission or launch two of these missions. That said. The other point that the report made was that all of these costs were baselined on existing flight hardware, so existing launch vehicles. Both this report and the one we'll talk about in a minute really highlight the fact that using either the space launch system that NASA is developing now or something like the Falcon Heavy that SpaceX is developing would cut the travel times uh, significantly, or using technology like uh, solar electric propulsion could also cut travel times significantly to get to one of these planets. So that's a really interesting development. The one thing that these reports didn't discuss is who was going to be paying the extra cost for an SLS or for a Falcon Heavy. Or, but that said, it's a really interesting development to see that you could you could really reduce the travel times. Yeah, and you could you could squeeze two on a single SLS if you wanted. <laughs> if you just had the money to make two, you, they tried to make this case that the the science is basically a linear relationship between money and science. Like there's no asymptotic approach of, of like total amount of science you can get. They say if you double your money, you will probably double your science. Like there, there's so much to discover about these places. And, and on the flip side of that, if you put anything there, even with a small science package, it's kind of this mission of pure discovery that we don't really we're not as used to these days because we we're sending orbiters to Jupiter again, right? Or missions to Mars again. And those advanced science in really critical ways and at this real depth to the understanding of those planets. But Uranus and Neptune is just what's there? Well, I don't know. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's look and we'll find something. Nice linear relationship between dollars and science uh, to be found there. And <laughs> a point that was made on planetary radio not long ago, these worlds, Uranus and Neptune, there are far more of them we see across the galaxy as uh, Kepler and others find exoplanets. There are far more worlds that look like Uranus and Neptune than there are that look like Jupiter. And, uh, you know, part of that's a function of what we're able to find at this point. We're going to be finding other Earths out there, hopefully. Matt Renninger, who uh, we'll be talking to later in the program, uh, he and I went on a tour about two weeks ago of the, the Space Telescope Science Institute up in Baltimore. Their focus is primary on, primarily on exoplanet research when it has to do with planetary science, although they do some uh, imaging with Hubble of planets in our solar system and uh, other objects. 
we had this really nice presentation on exoplanets and they made that precise point that their ability to understand what they're seeing as they gain capability in observing these these exoplanets that data is only useful if we understand what the implications are of it and the best way to understand that data is to as i said earlier to look at planets closest to us that we can actually get some really good scientific measurements and understand the pro the processes that formed it the processes that are ongoing on the planets so yeah th that would be critical and those two programs exist in tandem Okay, so I'm totally convinced. I think I think we should do <laughs> send missions. Uh, Jason, do you see any chance of these missions actually moving forward? Probably not. Well, in the next 10 years, possibly. In the next five, I think it's unlikely. I think that it was pretty clear from the the context of this report that this was NASA asking this community to put together this document to position itself for the next decadal survey. And given the, the launch windows that you were mentioning just a minute ago, it seems as though this is really to get everybody on board to understand how to build the coalitions, how to, how to start building your teams, how to start petitioning your stakeholders to make this mission happen in the next decade. I'm having trouble, though, just seeing where it fits in. I mean, the planetary budget at NASA has grown very well and, and will do very well, I think, in the next few years. But even then, it is kind of it's maxed out between Mars and this one Europa mission and then our smaller class discovery missions that go to basically asteroids these days. Where do you add the mission for that Uranus mission? If you want to launch in that in that Jupiter gravity assist launch window for, right. for Uranus, you've got to start working on that mission probably no later than 2026. That it's about as late as you would want to push that. And you really got to start maturing some of the technologies for it. I mean, all of these will need plutonium, right? right. Uh, and they, they, all of them that they list need that enhanced MMRTG, you know, right. with some basically some more energy efficient upgrades, to the existing uh, radioisotope thermoelectric uh, generator that we have now. And just like everything else, it seems like in NASA, decisions need to be made now that are going to be impacting the space program in 20 years. And so I yeah. just have a hard time. And and this kind of brings the other thing to me. Say we go through the decadal survey process again. Is there a responsibility to preserving built up infrastructure that to, to really go into the depth, the deepest parts of the questions of planetary science? I'm, and I'm thinking Mars here. Do right. we have a responsibility to maintain that investment at the sacrifice of things that we've never done before? Or do we say to the Mars community, sorry, we built up this incredible capability with this thousands of people in this field, but you know too much now and we need to go off of lower hanging fruit at the ice giants. You know, is that a fair thing to say? It is an accurate assessment of the types of decisions that are going to be ha will have to be made. And I'm really glad that I'm not the one who's making them. <laughs> um, I, I far prefer yours and my job of just going and trying to find, trying to elicit more and more support so that we can do all these things. I want the, all of them. Yeah. That said, if you and I are not successful or, you know, other things happen and the world decides that we're not going to spend that much money on planetary science, someone will have to make those choices. The, the real issue here is that the community can get together and through the decadal process, prioritize what they want. Do they want to continue with the Mars stuff? Do they want to, in what order do you want these things to be done? Because if they don't come up with that prioritization, somebody else will do it for them and they it won't be as thoughtful a process. Yeah, that's true. It's gonna be really fascinating to see how this turn comes out because let's let's bring in this other 
paper. It's not really a report, but it's a paper looking at a, a potential ocean worlds program. Casey, before, Ron... you, before you do that, I just got a telegram from the International Association of Venus Scientists wondering when they're going to come up in this show. <laughs> Venus has got a new frontiers uh, selection that it can go through at least. Right. Yeah, and they we'll have discussing... At least they have a shot. <laughs> Yeah, and well, that, well, that and issue comes up in this paper. So yeah. It's been a while, and, and this is actually maybe instructive. Venus had Magellan and missions before that, right? Uh, Pioneer Venus and others, it, it has had missions. Neptune and Uranus have had nothing except those flybys uh, once, right? Each one by Voyager 2 with instrumentation designed in the late 60s, early 70s. That, I mean, just as a comparison even, that that's, I think, instructive and I guess you have other uh, ESAs at Venus. Uh, the Japanese are at Venus. You know that you you have other capabilities there. There is not even another space agency capable of going to Neptune or Uranus, mm-hmm. right? And, and that could be an interesting argument that people could put out there. That look, even if we don't do Mars, other people, other space agencies can at least pick up the slack there. If we don't do it, no one else could even possibly do the ice giants right now. Therefore. We should do those at the expense of our Mars program. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not validating that argument, but I can see that just has a practical argument. It's interesting because there's going to be a, a lot of competition coming up, and this is the other paper, right? The the Ocean Worlds concept. That's yeah. correct. Let's let's uh, get into that. Tell us about that one. This was a paper uh, that was presented at GLEX, the Global Space Exploration Conference in China, uh, back in June. This is basically a paper outlining what an Ocean Worlds program is and would look like. To, to put a little context to this, the last appropriations bill actually mandates by law that NASA examine an Ocean Worlds program, but it doesn't define what it means by what, what Congress meant by this. Uh, this paper tries to put some definitions to what, to what that language could be. First of all, it points out that there are oceans liquid water oceans throughout our solar system. Some of them are frozen, some of them are under ice sheets, but there are an abundance of targets, and it's not just planets. There are lots of moons, there are lots of Kuiper Belt objects that have a lot of water ice on them. So there are a ton of destinations that we could arguably target in in this program. They then look at what restrictions there are that they're up against. They sort of model a new program line against the Mars Exploration Program and sort of discuss what the commonalities are and what the the differences are that you would see in this program. One of the things that they point out, of course, is that Mars is much closer and much easier to get to than a lot of these other destinations. And as a result, the mission class or the mission sizes are going to need to be larger just on account of the fact that you're going to need a lot larger lift vehicle or lift capability to get out to these destinations. In the same way that Venus has been competing in the Discovery small class mission competed mission line for a long time and just hasn't won a mission. I don't think there's ever been a, a discovery mission to Venus, right? And it Venus is also capable of competing in the New Frontiers medium class competed mission line, uh, which caps out at about a billion dollars. The Ocean Worlds program, the Ocean Worlds that, uh, that this paper highlights, they're not capable of competing competitively in the discovery line. They've tried a number of times and the missions are just, they're never selected and it's usually due to technical issues or the fact that you just you can't get enough science for that kind of cost by the time you get out there. So one of the things that this paper really advocates for is either dedicating the New Frontiers line to ocean worlds 
or doubling the New Frontier's budget so that you're selecting four of those missions per decade instead of two, and then assigning two of those missions to outer planets. This paper, it's a great read, and I'm hoping we can put up a link to this as well, because you guys actually sent me the document, uh, where people can check it out for themselves. It even has illustrations, Uh, (laughs) nice pictures of some of these worlds. It's written by several people from JPL, one person from Cornell. Can't generalize from a few authors at JPL submitting a paper, but uh, JPL is the Center for Planetary Science in the United States, more or less, right? Yes, it is. Uh, NASA sort of looks at JPL as the the go-to center, particularly for planning efforts like this. JPL tends to build most of the planetary spacecraft, though some of them are built elsewhere at Goddard or at APL or other places. But from the, the planning standpoint, I think almost all of that is at least led through through the JPL offices. To be really clear, this is not an official JPL proposal no, or no. document. These are I, I shouldn't uh, have implied that. I apologize. Yeah, the, there's people on this who worked in the Mars Exploration Program basically kind of giving some input on this paper too. Like what lessons can we learn from the Mars Exploration Program and how could those apply to an ocean world's exploration program? Again, I think it points out some really interesting challenges because Mars has the benefit of being one destination. You can send missions there and build up your, for example, <laughs> telecommunications infrastructure that we talk about a lot, uh, or a variety of other things. You, the environment is the same. It's the same Mars every time you go. And you can learn from each mission and you can launch every 26 months and you can get feedback from that mission within a couple of years and work that into the design of the next generation of missions a few years later. You can see that that cycle can happen every couple of years. That is not the case for your ocean worlds. You send an, a mission out to Europa, it does not help you at all at Titan beyond a broad sense of learning how to operate in deep space. You don't have a communications infrastructure at Europa that then benefits you at Titan or Triton or Enceladus. All of these worlds are different. That presents a real challenge in terms of a program. Why does the program benefit you with every destination as a separate problem? There's still value, and that's what I think is interesting here. The bureaucratic choices that we actually make in terms of how we structure efforts to explore parts of our solar system have real consequences to how many missions we'll see in our lifetime, what types of missions we'll see, and whether even we will continue to go in with these goals in mind. I think having this bureaucratic inertia is a really important part of long-term exploration capability. Right. Uh, And the other issue there, it's not just that the destinations are different, so it's difficult to build up the infrastructure, but the environments are different. It's not really technically feasible at the moment to put together a telecom operator capability or operations capability at Europa because the radiation environment is so harsh that it would eat your satellite alive much, much more quickly than it would at Mars. Or if, you know, going out to one of the outer planets it means that whatever you send out there has to be nuclear powered because you just can't draw enough power from the sun. So the, there, are, there are other constraints on these missions that, that don't align uh, in an apples-to-apples apples comparison with the Mars Exploration Program. I thought another really interesting point that they made is the importance of having long-term directed technology development. To various degrees of success, the Mars Exploration Program has one of their own, a technology program. It reminds you that, again, exactly what you were talking about, there are technologies that are unique to the challenges of the outer planets and the ice moons of the outer planets. And even amongst themselves are are 
need significant investment. And they point out here that right now there's investment in a large variety of technologies for a large variety of destinations, but absent a directed set of goals, it's very difficult to prioritize which technologies should we really focus on now over the, over others. How do we choose? And again, this is where I think having that kind of bureaucratic commitment of a, of a program can really help you, even if you don't quite get the same level of constancy you have with the Mars program. Like, how do you even just do this basic technology prioritization? Absolutely. And I think the, the, the other point that they made is that you, you, you have to have a variety of factors to have a successful uh, strategy of exploration. It's not just the medium class missions. It's not just the technology development. You'll also still want flagship missions. You'll also still want a data analysis uh, component to all of this. And more than that, you want an overarching strategy so that each mission follows on the discoveries of the previous one so that you're not asking the same question over and over again at different locations. You're trying to build the body of knowledge in a very strategic way. I think they make a really good case. Uh, it, this is where I think that the, the, the Mars Exploration Program is a good analogy. Hmm. And they make a really good case that having all of these components within a single programmatic structure just makes it a lot easier from a bureaucratic standpoint, from a policy standpoint, from a funding standpoint, to keep all of these aspects viable at the same time in a way that if they are not in a programmatic structure, each of those aspects has to fight for its own life separately. And that's a lot harder to sustain. Let me ask you guys, would an Ocean Worlds initiative like the one proposed here or talked about here get any extra points because there are powerful people in Congress who are basically calling for us to do the same thing, explore ocean worlds. Well, sure. Yeah. I, and I think really you can read this paper as putting some meat on the bones of proponents like John Culberson, who chair the committee that funds NASA in the House. He loves ocean worlds, outer planet exploration. He loves Europa. This would say, how can you pursue Europa missions in a broader context that addresses more scientific questions and builds a larger coalition, basically, which is what Jason, I think, always brings up. How do you sustain these for long periods of time? It can't just be Europa because there's a ton of people uh, who are interested in Enceladus and, and Titan and, and other places as well. This gives us a series of options. It's not just one proposal here. And I think the most interesting aspect, and I think potentially the most maybe challenging, but high payoff would be basically ocean worlds absorbing the new frontiers competed mission line hmm. and saying so it, it, you could double it you could basically say well you could spend more money <laughs> or if you don't want to spend more money take new frontiers away from an open competition which, which isn't quite true it's not quite open it's a series of pre-selected mission destinations about five to six that the decadal survey lists and then you can NASA competes of those missions and selects one every five years or so. This is kind of saying, well, if you want a real Ocean Worlds program, you can do one flagship a decade and New Frontiers belongs to the Ocean Worlds exclusively. And you, you compete options within that under the guise of some program and technology development. Then you're not really adding to the budget. But at the same time, the Venus community, you have sample return folks who want to do missions to the moon. It really limits the options of what's left. Discovery becomes the only open competition left, and Discovery tends to programmatically favor missions to nearby objects, such as asteroids, which were the last two selections. So do you see, Jason, a pushback from this idea of taking over new frontiers? I haven't seen a lot of pushback 
yet, but the paper hasn't been out all that long. I suspect if anybody starts talking about this seriously, you will see uh, the beginnings of internecine warfare amongst the various communities. <laughs> uh, I think that the community really likes the idea of open competition specifically for destinations. I think that the, the Discovery and the New Frontiers programs historically sort of came about because there was a lot of grumbling from the community outside of NASA that NASA's selection process tended to favor scientists that were within NASA. This alleviated that and I think it's been fairly successful. But I think if people start feeling as though that system is being gamed again, uh, there will be a significant pushback which I don't think is necessary. I think what you and I were talking about earlier, Casey, is this may be strategically viable, but it may be from the standpoint of coalition building, it may not be viable at all. So it's a, it's a really difficult problem, but this is, it's been an ongoing problem since the beginning of NASA, since prior to NASA, you know, the, the selection of, of what science to engage in in space predates NASA. As you said, it's the most fascinating process to watch in space science. <laughs> it, it, it really is. And again, what we're seeing here is, I, I think, our pieces being moved into place that are really going to be set up for this new decadal survey report that will come out in the early 2020s, sets that direction. And man, this is going to be fascinating because what we're really seeing here is this kind of fight for the future of planetary exploration. Where is Mars going to be? We're going to have yeah. samples on Mars waiting to be returned. Right. right. And and that will cost at least two decent sized missions to get them back. Right. We after will 20 have, years of investment. After so, 20 years of investment. Yeah. Right. With the need of an orbiter. So we have needs to build up the Mars program. At the same time, you have the ice giants community saying we could do a mission to the ice giants, but we need to start in that next decade in order to pay off in the next 25 years. <laughs> so in order to be alive, most of us, that needs to start soon. So you need to start investing in that. And then you have ocean worlds of uh, Titan, Enceladus, Europa, and the relevant communities of Saturn and, and Jupiter scientists basically saying, no, you can choose this whole new opportunity to really invest in ocean worlds and search for life, and we need to build that up as well. So you have three major areas all requiring significant investment. I don't even know what kind of budget you would need to support kind of doing a little bit of all of them, but it's probably higher than what we have now, which is near record levels for planetary science. Yeah, that's a safe right. no. bet. <laughs> yeah. Additionally, the other thing that's really not addressed in this paper is how do you do the selection of the targets? If you end up with an Ocean Worlds program, you're going to end up with a camp of Enceladus people and a camp of Europa people and a camp of, you know, uh, outer people. planets people. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's not entirely clear that the decadal process is the correct arrangement or could be made the correct arrangement to determine which of those should be prioritized and, and how to do that. You know, maybe that community should do that internally. I think it would be stronger if they did it internally, but, but nobody has addressed how you would set that up. So, a, again, a fascinating process to watch. Yeah. I just love that phrase, internecine warfare. Either of you guys reading the terrific Expanse series or watching the the uh, sci-fi uh, series. Uh, I, I've I, been watching. Yeah. I've been watching the show. I guess the technical term would be interplanetary warfare. Though. <laughs> yes. And, well, it's the, the internecine warfare of, yeah. b among Earth and uh, Mars and the Outer Planet Alliance, the OPA. <laughs> so here we have a miniature uh, lo-fi, low-budget version of it, uh, perhaps shaping up as we look to the future of planetary science.
this is why just to wrap it back into kind of what we do this is one of the challenges for us is to say why don't we just do all of them that's my preferred thing right because <laughs> again we talk about this as it's a lot of money but compared to even the nasa budget <laughs> it's not small overall changes and shifts in priorities of funding could enable Basically, I don't even know if a renaissance would be the right word. You would be returning to nothing, like an unprecedented level of planetary exploration in the next 15 years of our lifetime if we just directed small percentages here and there. And this is what we have people like Matt Renninger to do, who we are about to talk to here. So you like that transition, guys? I sure I do. That nice. <laughs> nice segue. I'm getting better. Very clever. And here I was just <laughs> fretting over, you know, if yeah. only there was a... a powerful, talented group of advocates working on behalf of this in Washington. Well, it yeah, just got exactly. bigger by 50%. That's, That's right. true. Yeah, it's quite an investment. So let's, let's, let's hear our interview with Matt Renniger, who I was very happy to hire onto our team earlier this year. Uh, he's just wrapping up his first 90 days. I think he is, he's doing a great job for all of you at the Society. And uh, let's, let's hear what he has to say. Yeah, he's a great guy, and he was at the office uh, in Pasadena for the first time a few days ago. That's when I got to sit down with him, as you're about to hear. Matt, it is a great pleasure to welcome you to uh, the Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio. But at the same time, and I didn't know this, welcome you to Planetary Society headquarters for the first time. It's your first visit. The very first visit, that's true. I've been a member for a long time, and I helped out on the advisory council for a bit, uh, but I've never actually uh, got to come out here. And it's actually really great. It's beyond even what I expected. Yeah, it is a really cool space, although you got to see our old home, right, at least from the outside? That's true, I did. Uh, Emily Walkedwalla actually drove me by. I, I still miss that house, but there's no way they could have shoehorned all of us in and still had a guest desk for you to sit at when you make it here, when you when you exit the Beltway. Yeah, that's true. They had a, a seat ready for me. It was all ready to go. It's like I was here the whole time. <laughs> you are, uh, if only at a distance. I mean, you're full-time with us now. That's right. With uh, the capabilities we have with Google Hangout um, and having Jason just actually a couple houses down uh, in D.C., the overlap is uh, pretty incredible. It's like I'm here a lot of the time. I didn't realize you guys were neighbors. I told my wife that night after I got together with you and Jason Callahan for beer and macaroni and cheese <laughs> yep. that that was one of the greatest nights I've had uh, having beer anyway, if not macaroni and cheese. It was such a fun discussion. Yeah, it, it was great. And it's just completely serendipitous that uh, Jason lives right down the street. So it couldn't have worked out better. You're new to the Planetary Society, but you have been in this business of advocacy for a very long time and, and, and policy, right? Policy making, because you come out of actually what? You're sitting on the other side of the desk now when you go up to Capitol Hill. Yeah, that's true. So that's a great way to put it. I've been in, I've been swimming in the soup for a long time, just on two different sides of it. Uh, so for about four years, I was a congressional staffer uh, on the Hill. Um, and then I spent the last year on an assignment as the senior congressional liaison at the Australian Embassy, where I sort of got my first taste of uh, advocacy on the other side of the coin. Um, and now I'm doing this full time. And, and if this wasn't just a space show, we would talk about your time working for the Australian Embassy because <laughs> there's some great stories out of that. But what what pulled you in? What was attractive about going to work for this place? Since I was a kid, I'm sure, like a lot of your listeners, uh, I had the, the science bug and the space bug. Um, I mean, even from, from middle school, it was the Jovian moons that did it for me, um, that pulled me in. I was, I've been fascinated about it um, since I was young. Uh, but in college, I got the policy bug also and got pulled into the policy world. And I never thought that 
uh, I would ever get the opportunity to reconcile those two. And um, part of my portfolio when I was a congressional staffer was covering um, science and technology issues for the member of Congress that I worked for. And I got to keep that portfolio going uh, at the embassy. So I was the principal liaison between the Australian embassy in D.C. and uh, the Congress, the U.S. Congress on science and technology issues. So that progression has been natural, and it's just been nice to see it evolve and actually culminate in something like this, which I never thought would have been possible. But this is sort of the pinnacle of it for me. That's good to hear. And and I hope you've also heard how really thrilled uh, Casey and Jason are. I mean, we've talked about it on the show, that you are now the third full-time member of the policy, the advocacy team here at the Planetary Society, and that you bring to it, I guess it's a really good meshing of skills. I mean, how would you describe that that balance? So Casey likes to say that we have a full bench now, and I think I think that's a, a great analogy. So we have a we're sort of a advocacy triumvirate. We have a complementary skill set. Casey's been doing this for a long time and understands the landscape really well. Jason has, I think, more degrees than uh, all of us put together um, and knows the policy inside and out. And they're able to generate products, and then I can leverage my experience. Um, which is understanding the mechanics of the hill, having the relationships up there with the key people. And I can go then what Jason calls shopping around. I can go shop around their ideas and their products um, and get them in front of the right people, which, you know, if you don't have both ends of that process, one sort of isn't as effective without the other. Let's talk about one of those products, something, again, that was talked about on a previous edition of uh, Space Policy Edition, and that's this Mars white paper. I think that's the appropriate way to call it, right? Uh, which I read, I just, I, in fact, I recommended it on the show as just a, a terrific read for anybody who's interested in the history of Mars exploration, at least by the United States. It's extremely well written. Uh, Jason and Casey are the primary authors on the paper. They got it into about a 40-page white paper that, that packages these issues that we're really concerned about. Then I was able to get my hands on it um, and use my experience, uh, having been on the other side of this and knowing what congressional staff need to see to be able, in their limited time and bandwidth, to wrap their head around it. We repackage it into sort of a one-page congressional summary, and that's what Jason and I are taking to the Hill every day um, in a targeted approach. And eventually, that'll culminate in a sort of a broader net that we're going to throw at Congress to make sure we get this in front of as many offices as possible. Well, expand on that. What is it that congressional staffers want to see? I mean, how do you shape your message? I wish we were the only ones hitting them up, but obviously uh, Washington is full of people who have their agendas and want to get them in front of the same people. Casey and Jason and I always talk about this idea of it's an uphill battle for bandwidth and credibility. Everything moves very quickly up there. In a typical House office, you only have about seven to nine staffers. So imagine for a constituency of 750,000 people, you have seven to nine staff, four of which are probably policy staffs. You have four people trying to cover the entire gambit of all policy portfolios. So they don't have a lot of time to spend on things. And unless they're on one of the two key committees of jurisdiction that relate to NASA, the Commerce, Justice, and Science Subcommittee or the Space Subcommittee, they probably aren't putting NASA or space science or planetary exploration towards the top of their list. We want to demonstrate to them, we want to show value going in and taking these things and having solutions, ideas like the solutions proposed in the Mars White Paper, there for them so they can understand and trust that we're credible. Um, and then we become the go-to resource for them. So in their limited bandwidth, when they need to figure something out, when a question comes up or their boss wants to know more about something that might be in the news, uh, they come to us and we're able to you know, frame and shape the discussion and get the right information to the right people. These are smart people, largely smart young people, but I got to think not a whole lot of them have deep uh, knowledge 
of uh, space issues, much less science. Uh, am I wrong? You're not wrong. It's actually one of the things that struck me and I was surprised by, as Jason and I have spent time on the Hill taking the white paper around and explaining the problems that are identified in it uh, to people who are key staffers, even on the two committees of jurisdiction that I mentioned, the phrase we heard over and over again was, how come I haven't heard about this? I can't believe this has happened. How did we get to this point? Um, and we're able to walk them through that and just sort of make them conscious of it. Maybe you've just answered my question, but I was going to ask what kind of reception you get. Is there a spectrum? But are people, do they embrace the stuff that you bring in? The principal reaction that we've seen is is just gratitude. You know, staff don't have a lot of time and they don't want to be the person who, when their boss comes to ask them a question, I can speak to this from personal experience. They don't want to be the staffer that doesn't have the answer. It has to say, I don't know about that, sir or ma'am. I have to go look that up. So we're able to get uh, that information to them in a way that's easy for them to, to digest and to understand um, and to be a resource there on the ground when, when they have follow-up questions. It gets trickier and there's some more nuance to it. So just getting someone to agree with you that this is a problem and we need to do something about it isn't enough. Um, Casey, Jason, and I are thinking strategically and trying to create actionable items to address these issues. So things like working on possibly doing letters to the administrator or finding a way to get language into appropriations bills um, or working with key decision makers and trying to sort of build coalitions of the appropriate people who are going to complement each other politically and also be in the appropriate position uh, on the relevant committees to actually move things forward. And it's a very delicate act. Um, So that's sort of what we're in the midst of right now. I made one trip to Capitol Hill uh, on sort of an advocacy journey, a lobbying journey, if you will, for a university. And it was very clear that uh, the staffers we were meeting with were really just trying to be polite to us. We were not approaching it with the degree of preparation that that you're talking about. That must make a big difference. And also bringing them issues that that they think their boss can get behind. That's actually a great observation, Matt. Um, a story I can share with you is, you know, Jason and I went into uh, an office uh, just a week ago, and it was an office that I didn't think we were going to get maybe a lot of traction with. Because the way Jason and Casey have shaped this white paper, where we're not just coming in with a problem and saying, you know, if NASA just had a couple billion more dollars, things like this would go away. We just need a top line increase. Don't worry about what the money's for. Everything will be better. Just throw a few billion dollars at us. The, the white paper is really thoughtful and crafts a suite of solutions. So you have different options and there's different starting points you can do it at. We map out the funding scenarios through several fiscal years um, and doing it with different combinations of capabilities. So the staffer doesn't have to spend the time figuring all all of that out for themselves, especially on a topic like space, where there's only a few handfuls of offices where maybe the space staffer has the expertise, the time, and the inclination to dive into that stuff. So we're bringing them not just these important problems that need to be addressed, but we're bringing the solutions with it. We're not just bringing them a problem. And so I think that's part of it. How much tougher is the job compared to, let's say, a, a big industry rep- representative or a corporation mm-hmm. who can bring a lot more to the table, let's say money? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just a poor nonprofit. We mm-hmm. can't really do that. Mm-hmm. That's also a, a great observation. So it's easier and it's harder on, on their, side of the, their side of the fence. What's easier for them is probably gaining the access. But where I think that 
corporations can get or companies can get into sort of a tricky scenario uh, where we have a little bit of advantage is that we're member driven. Mm -hmm. So the original research that Jason and Casey are turning out is member driven research. So I'm able to walk into an office and say, this is member driven. This is just because we care about this. This is from the community. And we just want to keep moving the needle forward on planetary exploration. And we see these issues as vital to that. There's always a little bit of a suspicion on the part of a congressional staffer. Again, I can speak to you from personal experience that when someone brings you these things and it's a bigger name or someone in the industry, you have to be asking yourself in the back of your head, well, what do they get out of this? And then you have to spend time, you have to go back to your, to your desk and dig through all that and try to make sure there's not a, a way you're either maybe doing something that you don't want to see happen or making your boss vulnerable. People don't have to worry about that with us, which is really great. This is really reassuring. Mm -hmm. If this is true, that, that, you know, Congress people really do pay attention when, let's say, Bill Nye or one of you guys walks in with, a, you know, a couple of bushels full of, uh, of petitions. Mm -hmm. So we always talk about uh, it within the advocacy team the power of human agency. The D.C. you see on TV isn't, isn't the real D.C. It's, it's a bunch of nerds locked in windowless rooms just trying to do the best they can. And a lot of it happens based off relationships, and it base, it's based off bandwidth and credibility, like we always say, and it's based off who you can trust. And so we're there building the relationships, and they trust us, so it, it makes it easier. We all know how polarized Congress is, as well as the nation. Yep. Do you see a distinction between the people on the left, the people on the right, or let's just say Democrats and Republicans, mm -hmm. in how they receive the kinds of things we bring them uh, related to space exploration? Yeah, I mean, it's no secret, Matt, that Congress is polarized. Um, it's also not a secret. Even the Science, Space, and Technology Committee is pretty polarized. Um, but I would contend, you know, maybe with the exception of some of the Veterans Affairs Committees and um, some of the stuff around defense, space is probably the least polarized of the subcommittees. So that's really helpful to begin with. In terms of reception, I don't think we see a huge difference in the reception of our message, but sometimes what we see is a difference in the solutions that maybe the offices have questions about or the things they propose. As you can expect, some of the GOP offices, a lot of the times they'll ask, you know, what is the private sector solution mm. to this? Um, and, you know, we're prepared for things like that. And a lot of times there is a private sector solution or we can talk to them about the unique situations in space science and space policy where there can be challenges to the private sector that don't exist um, in other industries where they might have seen uh, a more advantageous avenue moving forward um, with a path like that. I'll tell you something which uh, sort of indicates my bias, and, <laughs> and I'm, I'm a little ashamed of it. It's like when you walk into a congressman's office, and you know that congressman is very conservative, yep. and yet he has a picture of the Hubble wide, wide field mm -hmm. uh, on the wall of his office. Because this happened to me, and I'm sh you may even know who I'm talking about. I know about. exactly which office you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> and you think, wow, is that out of place? But that's like, Matthew, get with it. I, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me now. Uh, you know, why shouldn't he be excited about this stuff just the way uh, folks farther to the left are? Yeah, space brings out the best in us. Um, who said that? Yeah, that that's yeah. the boss. I think I've that. heard that before somewhere. I can't remember, I can't remember where. Um, but yeah, space brings out the best in, uh, in us, and... That's the exciting thing about being inside these offices. I mean, just like the story I shared with you a moment ago about, about Jason and I, we walked into an office I didn't think was going to be particularly friendly. And since then, that office, not only have we you know, established a good relationship with them and we're able to make the case that they found interesting, we're now a credible resource to them. And they've come back to us as a go-to source for questions that they have. I'm getting less and less surprised by those things, um, especially because, like I mentioned, I think this subcommittee in particular is one of the sort of the last oasises of bipartisanship. And we're going to foster that as best we can and, and keep moving forward with it. Well, there's a nice side benefit to the work that uh, the society has underway. We all know that we live in some pretty wild and crazy times. 
You know that we like to talk on this show about what's the outlook for space exploration in the short term and in the longer term, as if anybody really knew in the longer term. Uh, What are your thoughts about this? Where do you think we are, at least with the goals of the Planetary Society, fostering uh, planetary science and, and the other things that we're up to. Mm-hmm. Well, as you know from, I think, a couple episodes back that you guys did on, on the budget scenarios, uh, FY17 was a fantastic year uh, for planetary. Tomorrow we're going to have the uh, House markup for the Commerce, Justice, and Science bill. So we'll have a better sense then on how things are starting to shape up for FY18. But I, I think that the the mood is positive. The trajectory is upward and to the right, which is what we want to see every every fiscal year. I mean, I honestly feel like the Planetary Society is to a large degree responsible for that upward to the right trajectory, mm-hmm. and, and that's been moving forward. So I feel positive. I feel optimistic. But we're not going to let up. You never know what's going to happen, especially in an administration that, for better or worse, is a little bit unpredictable. So we're not going to quiet down. We're not going to stop nagging people, uh, and we're just going to keep it going. Man, I could quit right there, but you know, I'm just for selfish reasons on behalf of the society. (laughs) The company line, of course, is uh, that exactly what you said, that we have, we kind of punch above our weight. We, We have a lot of influence in D.C., you're new to this. Did you see this even before you became uh, joined the staff here? I saw this with a lot of issues. I think uh, the National Endowments for the Arts is a good example. All of my examples are in that space because it's some of the policy that I worked on. But because there maybe isn't the the largest community around it or because the community around it isn't as vocal as it possibly could be or the folks who are being vocal aren't organized, it's, it's harder to draw attention to it. But because of the capability we have now to coalesce around a set of ideas and because of the credibility that we have, I'm not as surprised. I, I think I've seen it. I've seen the evolution of it gradually in, in, other, in other issue portfolios over my career. Um, and I, I'm happy that this uh, portfolio is an exception. Sounds like you're pretty happy with the new job. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm real happy. So Casey's kind of a crappy boss. Don't tell him I said that. But, uh, besides <laughs> yeah, that, why would great. I tell him? <laughs> yeah, besides that, it's great. <laughs> Thank you, Matt. Yeah. I'm glad you're on the team. Yeah, thanks a lot, Matt. It's, it's great to be here in headquarters and I, why I have the, the chance, I guess, with uh, everyone listening out there. Thanks for your support and uh, thanks for contributing to the fundraising drive. It's in part uh, why I'm here and I get to have my dream job and um, help, like I said, move the needle forward on something I'm, I'm really passionate about. Great guy. Really enjoyed talking with uh, Matt Renninger, and uh, it is just terrific to have him as a part of this team with Jason Callahan and Casey Dreyer, who are with me, ready to uh, close out this edition of the Space Policy Edition. Guys, what might we be looking forward to talking about next month? Well, Matt Renninger is going to have his work cut out for him here in the next uh, month or so, because as we continue to promote the Mars paper and try to get this legislative fix to get this new Mars orbiter on the books... We have the entire federal budget process is grinding forward to a variety of uh, fiscal cliffs. Is that maybe the right term, Jason? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got an, an interesting summer ahead of us. We've got the, uh, the, the debt ceiling that will need to be raised. The fiscal year ends on September 30th, so we'll need to pass a budget of some form or a continuing resolution by September 30th. And at the moment, it's not at all clear how any of that's going to happen. And in the meantime, starting in August... All of the federal agencies, including NASA, will start putting together their FY19 budget request. So we'll be talking with those folks and seeing, trying to get a sense of what's coming down the pike in that regard as well. And there may or may not be a NASA administrator nominated by then. There may or may not be a executive secretary of the National Space Council by then who are will be setting the priorities for NASA for that 2019 budget should it 
be moving forward on time. So a lot of unknowns to move forward. I think we'll look, uh, see next month. I think the the fiscal cliff, the debt ceiling, and even budget resolutions in, in the House and Senate will be the biggest drivers of that. Not easy things to uh, do. Uh, also, there's this thing called health care um, that's taking up a lot of time in the Senate. <laughs> So squeezing that in, squeezing a NASA administrator hearing and then voting on them in the Senate may take a while. Yes. Ceilings to raise, cliffs to be pushed off. I'm, I'm surprised there wasn't any talk of brick walls in there, but uh, we'll leave it at that <laughs> list of this metaphors. Is wh- this is why I like more down-to-earth, achievable goals like exploring Uranus in our lifetime. <laughs> That's right. (laughs) (laughs) It does sound easier than solving the American healthcare uh, problems. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you very much. It has been delightful to talk with you and with uh, your new colleague, Matt Renninger. We will do it again next month, the first Friday in August. That'll be the 15th installment of the Space Policy Edition. I look forward to talking to you guys. It's always fun. Thanks, guys. I love doing this. And uh, special thanks to all our listeners who keep tuning in. I really appreciate it. Yeah, And even more than those of you who tune in, and of course we hope you'll continue to do that, those of you who are helping to make this program happen. Good, good point, Matt. I like them way more than people who just listen. Oh, yeah. The people <laughs> who don't. Favorites. Yeah, they're, we, they're, they're my super favorites. We do play favorites, <laughs> and uh, you can become one of them. It's so easy to become our favorite. All you have to do is go to planetary.org slash membership or planetary.org slash, what, what's better, uh, advocacy or, or donate? Membership. Membership. Just, just right membership. now, become a member. Yeah. Join us. We could uh, we could use your company. Join us for the weekly uh, standardized version of Planetary Radio, which uh, we'll be back with you next week, perhaps with some updates from uh, Casey. And uh, as I said, we'll be back first Friday in August. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. That's uh, Jason Callahan, our space policy advisor in D.C., Casey Dreyer, the director of space policy for the Planetary Society, I'm Matt Kaplan, the host of Planetary Radio. Have a great month.